Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Thank you, Aiden. That was beautiful. Thank you, Judy. Good morning, church. My name is Abraham Phillip, and it's a delight and a pleasure to be here this morning with you. Pastor Chris and Pastor Steve are away on vacation, much needed time away, and the mantle has fallen to me to open God's Word, and what a delight it is for me to be here with you to do that. Have you ever, um, growing up in school, ever attended chemistry where you had to do a chemical reaction? Perhaps you built a paper mache a volcano where you added some chemicals to make that lava thing burst out. Anybody, anybody ever do that? Just a couple, a couple of you, okay. Well, a modern-day version of that, I don't know if you've ever done that, is taking Mentos and a bottle of two-liter Coke. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? There's a couple back there, reckless people back there. That's why they're back there. Um, Mentos and a two-liter bottle of Coke. Do Do you know what happens when you put those two together? Well, there is a chemical reaction that's really violent. In fact, the more Mentos you put into that bottle of two, of, of two liter bottle of Coke, the larger and the more explosive that chemical reaction is. I was going to do that for you here this morning, but Pastor Chris and the building staff would not have been happy with me. And so I'm going to have to resort to a picture. Look at this picture. Eventually it'll, it'll show up. This is what a, <clears throat> a two liter bottle of Coke, that's about five Mentos, just five. And you can see there's a chemical reaction that, well, just overflows. It just explodes out of the bottle. I show you that picture in order to introduce the series that we're going to start today that EJ already told us about. It's called Overflow. From him, through us, to all. From him, through us, to all. And just like that bottle of of Coke with Mentos in it, It has an explosive force. So we as children of God need to have that kind of explosive overflow in our lives because we are children of God. Amen? Amen. And so in order to do that, we're going to spend the next several weeks in the middle of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. It's actually the letter of 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter Eight. And while you turn there, let me just set the scene. Let me um, give you some background. The church in Corinth was a rich and beautiful uh, church located in a rich and beautiful city. In fact, that city was located on an isthmus. If you know what an isthmus is, it's a narrow piece of land that connects two larger land masses. And as a result of its location, it had ports on both its west and east coast. And, and so all travel between north and south had to go through Corinth. And as a result, this was a, a large metropolitan city full of money and people and culture and languages and everything else that you would expect in a multicultural, multi ethnic city. The Apostle Paul visited this church or this city on his second missionary journey, and he established the church at that point, and he spent 18 months in that city preaching and teaching the Word of God and establishing and building up the church in that city. And so we have here today the second Corinthians. It's written about a year after he wrote first Corinthians. And this letter, this, this chapter, this book in our Bibles breaks down into three very simple 
uh, categories. First seven chapters of 2 Corinthians talks about Paul's philosophy of ministry and how that philosophy impacts the relationship between Paul and this church. The last four chapters, chapters 10 through 13, talk about or, or has Paul defending his apostleship. And he really provides a sharp rebuke to some, some people in that church called super apostles who thought they were better than the apostle Paul and who created some tension and some conflict between Paul and this church. But sandwiched in between those two sections are chapters 8 and 9. And that's where we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, looking at. And in these two chapters, Paul takes the time to help this church understand the motivation behind generosity. The motivation behind generosity. And why does Paul take up two chapters to talk about generosity with this church? Well, Paul had it on his heart to take up a collection from all of the churches that he had established, to take it back to the church in Jerusalem who was undergoing extreme, uh, an extreme famine. There was a lack of food. There was a lack of resources. And on top of that famine, they were undergoing intense persecution. And so Paul's heart for the poor in Jerusalem was to take up this collection. And so he wanted to come by Corinth and pick up that collection and take it personally together with all of the other things he was collecting to alleviate the suffering of the Christians in Jerusalem. So that was his heart. That was his motivation. However, in fact, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had already established a need to make this collection happen. And so the Corinthian church had actually promised Paul that they would give. But because of some of these super apostles who were in the church, they had this tension between Paul and the church. And so this collection took a back seat to all the other issues that the church was facing. And so as Paul writes this letter, he spends two chapters to help revitalize and to remotivate this church to refocus on their generosity and to fulfill the commitment that they had made over a year ago. So I know some of you are sitting here probably for the first time or maybe even the second time and you're thinking, here we go again, another pastor preaching about giving. You know, we think of generosity like my children um, when I tell my children to pick up their toys. <sighs> Do I have to? <sighs> okay. I'll get to it, Dad. I'll get to it. But as soon as I tell them, hey, pick up your toys. There's some ice cream. <gasps> ice cream? And all of a sudden, zoom, 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 zoom. We're all over the place. The place is clean. The toys are put away. The floors are vacuumed. And it's spotless. Why? Because there's ice cream in it. And so for us, it's like that. I got to give. Is it really necessary to be generous? I mean, come on. What I want to do is give you the ice cream. <laughs> what I want to do is introduce you to grace. The motivation behind the generosity that Paul is going to talk about is the ice cream called grace. You okay with that? That ice cream sound and taste good? It's going to taste wonderful when we're done, all right? And so that's the idea. In fact, Paul, when he talks about generosity, doesn't talk about money at all. He never once talks about money. What he does do is talk about the motivation behind generosity, and that is grace. And so as Paul addresses this topic and the motivation for generosity, as we look at the first six verses of chapter 8, we're going to find that grace received is grace given. That grace received is grace given. So how do we know that we have received grace in our lives? 
How do we know? What's, what's the indicator? Well, one of the big indicators is how that grace in our lives overflows. Just like Mentos added to a bottle of Coke has an explosive force, grace, when it impacts our lives, has an explosive force that has to overflow, that has to gush out of our lives. So what I want to do this morning as we look at this chapter, these first six verses, is look at three reasons how we can know that grace received is grace given. And the first is that grace overflows regardless of circumstances. Grace overflows regardless of circumstances. Let me read for you the first two verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul here starts this section of generosity with pointing to some other churches in an area called Macedonia. I have a map for you, just a simple map, to kind of lay out the the places where these cities are. So Corinth, you'll see, is is in part of the lower uh, part of Greece in an area called Achaia, located right at that little sliver of land called that Isthmus. And so Corinth is part of southern Greece and part of that uh, area called Achaia. To the north of, of that are some cities up in Macedonia three of which we know Paul visited and established churches in. Those are the cities of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. In fact, we know that Paul wrote three letters to those churches because we have them in our Bibles, the the letter to the Philippians and two letters to the churches in Thessalonica. And what we know about these churches from reading Paul's letters is that they were doctrinally sound and they were extremely generous. They were extremely generous. And so Paul uses these churches as an example to this church in Corinth in order to motivate them to generosity. But notice, as we look at verse number 4, that these, these churches in Macedonia were under extreme affliction. They were being persecuted by non-believers for their faith in Jesus Christ. Because they were a follower of Jesus Christ... People were unwilling to do business with them. They were unwilling to buy from their shops. They were unable to hold down a job, perhaps even losing their home because they couldn't afford to live in there anymore. Coupled with that fact of intense persecution, Paul tells us that they were were in abject poverty. In fact, the, the phrasing that the Apostle Paul uses to talk about abject poverty really has the idea of them being dirt poor. I mean, this is not a, a fun place to be. I mean, if, if I had circumstances like this, extreme persecution and, and I was dirt poor, the last thing on my mind is to be generous. What about you? I'm trying to figure out how to pay the bills. I'm trying to figure out how to make life work. The last thing on my mind is generosity. And yet, the Apostle Paul here, if you notice what he says here, he said, in spite of these circumstances that would have made anybody else unhappy and and angry at what life is throwing at them, these people are abounding in joy, and that joy overflows in a wealth of generosity. Just as Mentos added to a two-liter bottle of Coke gushes out, these Christians in Macedonia had a gushing out experience, an overflow experience of generosity. Now, how in the world can people going through intense persecution and living in abject poverty have such an overflow 
of generosity. How does that work? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, in verse number one, the Apostle Paul tells us that the grace of God had been given to them. The grace of God had been given to them. When we think of grace, what do we think of? The normal definitions that come to mind are what? It's God's unmerited favor, getting something that we don't deserve, right? And we certainly didn't deserve the love of God, did we? God lavished his love upon us in his grace So Jesus came into this world to die on the cross in our place. That's grace. It's something we didn't deserve. But the Apostle Paul is looking at not just the pure definition of grace and what we receive from God, but how that grace in our lives transforms us and the transforming power of the grace of God in our lives. Because when the grace of God comes into our lives, what happens is it makes us more like God, doesn't it? And what kind of a God do we serve? As far as I know, he's always giving. He spoke the word and the universe leapt into existence. The Bible says that he opens his hand and he satisfies his people. He brings rain on the just and on the unjust. God gave us his son. You notice the pattern? He's always giving. How many of you would say that God has given us something today? That God is so, so good. Four of you. Okay. That's good. The rest of us, we're going to need some counseling. Pastor John is out in the foyer. He'll help you out. But God is so good. He's so, so good because he's always giving. He's always faithful. And when the grace of God impacts our life, we end up looking more and more like him. And one of the primary ways that we look like him, according to Paul in this passage, is that we become generous like he is generous to us. And that's why Paul tells us that the grace of God has been given to them. That despite all of the poverty, despite all the persecution, this church, impacted by grace, had a heart of generosity. You know, we when we think of generosity, we think of generosity when we get that promotion or when that bonus check comes in or our tax refund is bigger than we expected. And then, you know, the sun is shining and, oh, I feel good. I, I feel generous, right? But when that promotion doesn't come and that bonus isn't there or we end up having to pay the government more money than we thought, generosity isn't the first thing on our minds, is it? And yet, what this church teaches us and what Paul is teaching us is that if grace has impacted our lives and we're becoming more like him, then generosity is not just what we do, it's part of who we become. That that grace transforms us. That regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's happening around us, that our natural inclination is to be generous. We overflow regardless of our circumstances. The second way we know that grace has been received in our lives is that grace overflows beyond its limitations. Notice verses 3 and 4. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So, according to the Apostle Paul, he knew, he knew their poverty. He knew that they were struggling. And it's most likely, and it's my opinion, that I don't think the Apostle Paul told this church about the collection he was gathering for the impoverished in Jerusalem. In fact, fact, if, if 
Paul came to me and I was a Macedonian and said, hey, I'm taking up a collection for the people in Jerusalem. You know what I'd have said? Hey, when are you taking up a collection for me? I mean, after all, I've had the same needs. I'm in the same boat as they are. And yet what we find is that there's no begging by Paul. There's no arm twisting. There's no coercion. In fact, it's not even Paul doing the begging. If you notice verse, the verse we read, it's the church begging Paul for the privilege of giving. Have you ever heard of a church saying, hey, pastor, you got to pass out those offering plates again. I need to give some more. I mean, that's music to a pastor's ear. But that's what they did. They were begging Paul for the opportunity to give. I don't know how they could do that. How can they have nothing and yet be willing to give? And you notice that Paul says that the Macedonian Christians saw this as a favor. The word favor there is the word grace. In fact, grace is used three times in these six verses. This is the second time we find the word grace used. They saw it as a grace to be able to give. You see, the transforming power of grace is something that enables and empowers us to do something. And in this case, it's to give, to be generous. You see, grace has that ability in our lives. All of us have different graces. Some of us have the grace or the ability or the empowerment to do certain things and others do not. But others have the grace to do other things. I was talking last week to a friend of mine. We were out for breakfast and <clears throat> he said that many years ago the church had wanted some volunteers to help with children's ministry. He never had done that before and because the church had expressed the need, he decided that he would volunteer and so that particular Sunday they assigned him to the three-year-old room. And he said he had never understood why children's workers complained that the service went long. Until that day, uh -huh, that day he worked in children's ministry because every minute the service went long felt like an hour. You see, he quickly realized he didn't have the what? He didn't have the grace for three-year-olds. But other people do. Other people have the grace to minister to children, to love children, to pour into children. They have the grace. Others do not. And so all of us, we have the grace of God to do different things. That's why we need each other, because we're the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, that grace comes together, and we get to help each other out. But as this church teaches us, this Macedonian church, all of us have been given the grace to give. Even though they didn't have a lot, Paul tells us they dug deep into the little that they had, and they gave anyway beyond all expectation, blowing out all of Paul's expectations on their behalf, they gave out of their abundance of nothing. And they gave anyway. That's what verse 3 tells us. Not only did they give, but they gave way beyond their ability. They knew that the church in Jerusalem was suffering, and they decided they were going to do whatever it took to help those Christians out to alleviate their suffering. This kind of giving doesn't make sense to us. How do you give when you have nothing? I mean, that kind of math doesn't equate in our minds, and yet this church was so transformed by the grace of God that they couldn't do anything but gush over, overflow in their generosity and in their desire and their zeal to give. One of the greatest marks that a heart has been touched by the grace of God is that it counts generosity as a privilege. 
You see, generosity isn't dictated by our ability or what we have or don't have or the resources or the circumstances. It's simply a willingness moved by grace to count generosity as a joyful and a willing privilege. That's how grace overflows beyond our limitations. And that can only happen when grace impacts our lives. The third way in which we know that grace received is grace given is when grace overflows as giving of ourselves. When grace overflows as giving of ourselves, notice verses 5 and 6. Paul goes on to say, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. You see, the, what the Macedonians gave blew Paul away. All of his expectations were blown away. It blew the roof off by, his, by their giving. And Paul here in verses 5 and 6 tell us that the reason they were able to do that is because they first gave themselves to God. You see, the priority of giving has to first and foremost start when we give ourselves to God. Because when we submit ourselves wholly to God, the first thing we realize is that everything we are and everything that we have doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Him. And that's what giving to God first means. But the problem is if we give without understanding that truth, if we give without understanding that submission or that priority of submission, then we're just trying to be generous with our stuff. And you know about our stuff, right? We don't like to give our stuff away, do we? Because it's our stuff. It's, it's mine. I remember sitting uh, for lunch after church one Sunday at a, at a burger place, a, a place we, we like, and we had all ordered burgers and fries, and I had finished my plate, and it was clean, and, and I looked over at one of my children who shall remain nameless, and um, I noticed that most of their fries were still there, so I nonchalantly just reached over to grab a fry. And you would think I had just declared war. <laughs> that kid slapped my hand and said, put their arms around their plate, and said, no, my fries, go get your own. And I'm thinking, you little bugger, I bought you those fries. I can buy you more fries. In fact, I can make it rain fries in here if I wanted. But that's our natural reaction when it's our stuff. Leave my stuff alone. And when the preacher says, be generous, uh, okay, I'll give this much because the rest is mine. You see, for the Macedonians, that's not the way they thought. For the Macedonians, they realized that everything they are and everything that they have, all of their stuff belonged to him. They recognized that, Lord, it's all yours. You own me. You own everything I have. You've entrusted to me these little resources, and I'm just a steward of all of this. So, Lord, you do with it whatever you want. Oh, man, that's hard for us. Because it's my stuff. I want to keep my stuff. I like my stuff. My stuff makes me happy. And yet the Macedonian believers understood what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he said, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
Folks, it's not about looking at our stuff and saying, okay, I can give this much because I can, I can afford that. No, it's about looking at everything we are and everything that we have and say, Lord, it's all yours. You own it all anyway. Everything in this earth and everything in this universe belongs to you, so I submit it all to you. That's where this, these Macedonian Christians began. They began with that understanding of submitting themselves completely and wholeheartedly to God. That's what allowed them to be generous. Generosity is the fruit of a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God and by the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we come to that cross and we cling to that cross and we allow the grace of God to flow into us and wash us clean, it also asks us to give all of ourselves to him. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your acceptable or reasonable act of worship. That means all of us. That means all of our bodies, all of our abilities, all of our skills, all of our resources, everything we have on the altar of God's grace and say, Lord, it's all yours. Do with it whatever you will. That's hard to do. You know what the problem with living sacrifices is? Living sacrifices keep crawling off the altar. But he tells us to keep coming back, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices on that altar of his grace and allow him to lead us, to control us, to distribute the resources that he's so faithfully given to us in whatever way he will. And so when Paul says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice... What that tells us is that God is not so much interested in what or how much we give. He's more interested in how much of us is in the gift. Can I say that again? He's not so much interested in how much we give. He's more interested in how much of us is in the gift. My friends, as you came today, how, how much has your generosity been part of you? And how much of you have you been able to give as part of that generosity to those around you? That's what the Apostle Paul is telling this church in Corinth. That the Macedonian church understood the truth. That they had submitted everything that they were and everything that they had to God. And, and so they gave out of their poverty. And they gave abundantly. God wants you. God wants me. There was a story about a group of missionaries who were in New Mexico ministering to the Indians on a reservation. And one particular Indian had come to faith in Jesus Christ, had given his heart, but he was dirt poor. And the next night he was at service again and they got to the part of the service where they pass out the offering plates. And the usher came by with the offering plate and stood in front of the Indian. And the Indian looked up at the usher and looked down at the plate and said to the usher, could you lower it a bit? And so the usher lowered it a bit. And the, usher, and, the, and the Indian looked at the usher and said, could, could you lower it a little bit more, please? And so he, he lowered it a little more. The Indian looked at him again and said, I'm so sorry, could you lower it a bit more? And the usher's thinking, what, what in the world? So he lowered it. In fact, he just placed it on the ground. And the Indian stood up from where he was sitting, stepped into that offering plate and said, I don't have anything else to give, so I'll give him my life. Because that's all I have to give. Friends, it's not your money God wants. He already owns everything. He wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants you to be willing to be able to give him everything. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? When Jesus came into this world, he didn't just give us a part of himself. He didn't just send us a check 
to help us get through our troubles. He didn't send a surrogate. No, he gave us himself, didn't he? He gave us all of himself. Jesus left the glory and the splendor of heaven behind, and he came into this world to die on the cross, to die in our place. He gave us everything. And so when we surrender our lives to him, the question we have to answer is, how much of us have we surrendered? How much of us have we surrendered to him? Folks, generosity isn't something that we do. It's what we become when we become more like him. But a heart of generosity cannot happen in us unless we first give ourselves to the Lord. Perhaps you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. My friends, that's where it all starts. That's where it starts. It starts where we understand that Jesus is Lord, that he came into this world to die in our place, to take upon our, himself our sins, to pay the penalty we could not pay so that we might have a relationship with him that we didn't deserve. Friends, if you're here and, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, why don't you invite him into your hearts today? Say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for the mistakes I've made. So, Lord, I turn away from my sins and I turn to you and I accept you as Lord and Savior. The Bible says the moment you do, you will be saved. Why don't you come to know him today? I invite you to come to know him today. But for all of you who do know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I'm so thankful for every one of you. But may I humbly ask you this morning, have we submitted everything to Jesus? Is everything in our lives submitted unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Our skills, our resources, our wealth, our homes, our children, our cars, our everything. Whose is it? Is it ours and my stuff? Or is it his? God's not interested in the fact that he wants all of that from you. He wants you. And he wants your heart. And he wants all of it. I pray that you and I will come to the realization that as grace enables us to be generous, as it transforms us to be more like him, that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our limitations, that we will give all of ourselves to him so that grace that we have received becomes grace given, overflowing from him through us to all. Father, thank you so much for this word. Father, thank you for Jesus who came into this world to take upon himself our sins, our penalty, that he died the death we should have died. What a great and generous God you are, and you call us to be the same. And so, Lord, as grace continues to work in our lives, as, he, as it continues to transform us into people more like you, may we continue to submit all that we have and all that we are to you and say, Lord, take it all. Take it all. It's yours anyway. And so that, Lord, through us, that you might be able to bless those who are hurting, those who are in need, those who don't have the same privilege as we do, that we might be found more like you in how generous we are. Thank you for the time we've had to spend together this morning in your word. We pray that this word would continue to ring and resonate in our hearts. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That you would rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light for your glory and for your honor and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand and let's worship God together.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.